0: If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17. As we continue in the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John 17. This chapter of Scripture has been referred to since at least the 16th century as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and we can easily understand why such a name would be given and why such a name would stick. And so this morning we're going to be in John 17, specifically considering verses 1 through 10 but I do want to go ahead and read the entire chapter. So we'll read the entire chapter, and for the sermon we'll be considering verses 1 through 10. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. They are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. That they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you yet I have known you And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now as we consider this prayer, this prayer is deep and rich, and it undoubtedly contains many things that are hard to understand. How could it be otherwise when the incarnate Son of God prays about the unity that He has with the Father and the glory that He had with the Father before the earth was even created? Now you and I can talk about these things and we should talk about them, but we do not fully understand them. Martin Luther supposedly commented on this prayer by saying, I fear that we cannot properly estimate and describe the power the characteristic quality and the virtue of this prayer. For however simple and unadorned, it is nevertheless impossible to fathom its profound significance, its wealth, and its compass. And so, may God give us help and insight by the Holy Spirit as we consider this remarkable prayer that our Lord Jesus uttered just before his betrayal, before his trial, before his Crucifixion, and so this morning, as I said, we'll be looking at the first ten verses, and under uh, under these first ten verses, we'll we'll be looking at it under two main headings: first, the the deity and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and secondly, the grace of Christ towards His people. The deity and sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and also the grace of Christ his people. So Jesus here begins this prayer by lifting up his eyes to heaven and praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now obviously in these words Jesus is looking ahead to the events of that very night and what was coming upon him the following day. And when he says the hour has come, Christ is, is proclaiming that the time for the great events for which he had come into the world were right there at hand and would very soon unfold and be accomplished. Earlier in his ministry, you may recall how John, in John we, we see this, this phrase about Jesus' hour. And so in John 7.30, the, the Jews had wanted to seize Jesus, but no one laid his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Similarly, in John 8.20, we were told that Jesus was speaking in the temple treasury and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, we get the impression that in both instances they would have liked to have seized him because he was saying things that were offensive to them, things which they did not like, provocative things, but yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. But now it's all, it's all different. When the Greeks had come to see him in the temple back in chapter 12, Jesus had said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Similarly, in John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows his hour had come. He knows for certain that the events were in motion, which would culminate that very night in his betrayal, his arrest, and the next day in his crucifixion and death and burial. The hour had come. But the hour had come, not simply for these bad things to happen, but for the Son of Man to be glorified. He asks the Father for this very thing, for the Father to glorify the Son, And why does he ask this? He makes the request so that he, as the Son, might glorify the Father. Jesus says, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. He's praying here that the Father would carry him through all of the darkness and suffering that was about to come upon him and would bring him, in the end, to the Father's right hand in glory and power. Jesus knew that the hour was there, that he was going to be laying down his life for the sheep. No one was taking his life from it from him, but he was laying it down of his own accord. And so he asks the Father to bring him through all of that which was immediately in front of him and bring him back to the Father in glory by means of resurrection and ascension and exaltation to the Father's right hand. And there's no doubt that our Lord Jesus is worthy of this glory but he's not seeking glory for himself he says glorify the son that the son may glorify you the finished work of redemption which would be accomplished in the glorification of the son would indeed glorify the father because it would testify of the father's mercy and love for the salvation of sinners The Father and the Son are working together in this plan of salvation. So the glory of the Son necessarily means the glory of the Father as well. The Father is glorified in that His everlasting righteousness is demonstrated because His justice is satisfied by the death of Jesus on the cross as He paid the penalty for our sins, bearing the wrath of the Father against sin. And thus the love and the justice of God are upheld and demonstrated on the cross. And now sinners the world over, worship and honor this great God and Father because of what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that Jesus can say, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then you notice in verse 2, He makes an analogy. Christ's request in verse 1 is, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And this is likened, compared to what the Father has already done. Jesus says, Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you even as you gave Him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given Him He may give eternal life. In other words, Jesus' request in verse 1 is analogous to what has already happened as described in verse 2. The Father has given Christ authority over all flesh so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, You have already given me authority over all flesh, so that I may give, author- may give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Now glorify me. God the Father had given this authority to Christ over all flesh. Now, what, what does that mean? Jesus is eternal God. And as God, he has authority over Over all flesh. He is the the creator and the sovereign ruler of all. We read about that here in Colossians 1 in our unison reading. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. As the creator, he already has authority over everything. And so what does he mean when he says that the Father has, has given him authority? I think John Gill was helpful when he said that this is not that original power over all things that he has as God and as the creator of them, which is natural, essential, and underived, but this is a derived and delegated power which he has as mediator. Jesus occupies his office as the mediator between God and man according to both his human nature and his divine nature, and therefore as the God-man in the office of mediator, he has received from the Father authority over all flesh, so that he as the mediator might give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. This giving of authority over all flesh, which Jesus is speaking of here, is, is part of the covenant of grace, part of the covenant between the Father and the Son in eternity past. And Paul can speak in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 of The hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, or more literally promised before times eternal. In other words, this promise concerning eternal life is a promise that was given before creation itself. This was a promise that was given By God the Father, to God the Son. They had covenanted together in this plan of salvation that the Son would become incarnate, that he would take on flesh and blood and become a mediator between holy God and sinful mankind. And therefore, as Jesus says here, you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The Father has given authority to Jesus over everyone in the world so that Those whom the Father has specifically given to Christ, he may give eternal life. And the Father is glorified in the fulfillment of this plan, that those whom he has given to his Son may receive eternal life. Now we need to notice here this language that Jesus uses concerning those whom the Father has given him. We see Christ using this, this kind of language as recorded in the Gospel of John from, from time to time, where he, he speaks of those whom the Father has given him. And in speaking of this way, he's not talking about everyone. He's talking about specific people. And so, back in John 6, Jesus said this, John six thirty seven and following, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You find something similar, John ten twenty six and following, where Jesus is speaking to the Jews. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so you hear this this common refrain, John 6, John 10, and here in our chapter, John 17, the Son gives eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. This is something that infallibly comes to pass. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Doesn't say they might come or should come or ought to come, but that they will come. They do come. It does happen. The Son gives them eternal life. This means that here in John seventeen two, the those whom the Father has given to the Son is a is a subset. Excuse me. The the uh, yeah. That's right, those whom the Father has given to the Son is a subset of the the all flesh over whom Christ has authority. He has authority over all flesh, but from that all flesh, some are given specifically to Christ so that he gives them eternal life. This is the doctrine of election. This election by the Father then comes to fruition as those whom the Father has given to the Son receive eternal life from the hands of Jesus Christ. They were given by the Father to the Son in eternity. And then in due time, they are drawn to Christ in saving faith as they hear the gospel, as they repent from their sins, and as they believe in Jesus Christ. This is what it means when the elect receive eternal life. And what is eternal life? Well, Jesus says it there in verse 3, doesn't he? He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is found in knowing God and in knowing Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Obviously, this kind of knowledge is not simply a head knowledge of facts. The devil knows a lot about God, knows a lot about Jesus. But he does not have eternal life. People, many, know lots of things about God, lots of things about Jesus, but don't have eternal life. The knowledge that is spoken of here is a saving knowledge, which includes not only a knowledge of who God is and of the facts of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, but also a love for God, a love for Jesus Christ, and a trust in what God and Christ have done for us in the plan of salvation. That's what it means to truly know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now we need to take note here that some have seized upon the words of verse 3 and have have twisted them so as to assert that the designation, the only true God, applies to the Father, to the exclusion of Jesus Christ. But this is not so. God is the only God to the exclusion of the false gods of the nations, but the Father is not God alone to the exclusion of the of the Son and the Holy Spirit. As Cyril of Alexandria in the ancient church expressed it, when then he said that the Father was the true God, he did not exclude himself, for being in him and of him by nature, he will also himself be the true God and the only God, as he is the only God, for besides him there is no other God who is the only true God. And so, when the Lord spoke in Isaiah forty four twenty four and said, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, it is clear that this is not spoken by the Father to the exclusion of the Son. For though all things are from the Father, as we find in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, nevertheless, at the same time, all things came into being through the Son and without him was not anything made that was made, as we find in John 1, 3. Or again, as we uh, read together from Colossians chapter 1. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And so the, the point is that sometimes when we see this exclusive language being applied to the Godhead, we need not separate the persons of the Godhead. Indeed, Jesus himself is called our only Master and Lord in Jude, verse 4, but surely this does not exclude the Father and the Holy Spirit as being also Master and Lord. And John himself calls Jesus the true God in 1 John five twenty, when he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And in the construction of 1 John 5.20, the nearest antecedent of the word this, in this is the true God, the nearest antecedent is Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. As Jesus says here, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And as our Lord continues, he proclaims to the Father in verse 4 that he has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. Again, with the coming of his crucifixion and death so near, Jesus can pray as if this work were already accomplished. He had been entirely faithful in accomplishing the work which the Father had given him to do to that point, and the climax of it all was so near that he could speak of it all as being already finished. And again in verse 5, he asked that the Father would glorify him, specifically that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had with the Father even before the existence of the world. Jesus Christ had faithfully accomplished what the Father had given him to do. And the accomplishment of that task resulted in the Father's glory. And as we find in verse 6, one of the significant aspects of the work of Christ, which he had accomplished to that point was the manifestation of the Father's name to the disciples, to those whom the Father had given him out of the world. And when we see this kind of language about the the name of God or the, the name of the Father, it means more than simply the name by which he was called. Jesus didn't simply say, there is God, he is, he is your Father, end of the story. No. When... Jesus speaks of the, the manifestation of God's name. He's speaking of the revelation of God's character, his attributes, who God is. And indeed, this is one of the main components of Christ's incarnation, was to reveal the Father to his people. And so we find the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ is that only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and he has explained the Father. And this, again, sheds light on the dialogue between Jesus and Philip back in John 14. They were there in the upper room, and Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been so long with you, and you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you not believe, he says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. You see, Philip didn't quite understand the ministry of Jesus. He asked Jesus to show him the Father and that will be enough. Of course, but Jesus says, Philip, don't you know, That's that's what I've been doing all along. The words that I say to you are not mine. They come from the Father. The works that you've seen me doing are the results of the Father abiding in me, doing His works. This is one of the central aspects of of Jesus' earthly ministry, manifesting the name of the Father to those whom the Father had given Him out of the world. And so notice here, in these these opening verses of this, this high priestly prayer, what these words teach us about the deity and the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ prays in a way that no created being could ever pray. Let's look at verse 5. He asks the Father to be glorified with Him, with the glory that He shared with the Father before the world ever existed. But this certainly teaches us of the pre-existence of Christ. But even more than that, it teaches us of His deity, that He is indeed true and very God, we know from the scriptures that God is, is very jealous of his glory. He says in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And yet Jesus says here, glorify me together with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This tells us that the Father is God and also the Son is God. And yet at the same time, there's only one God. As Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And We have the evidence of the unity of the Father and the Son strewn throughout this prayer. And we see not simply the, the deity of Christ here, but we also see his sovereignty. The Father has given Jesus authority over all flesh. And this is what the theologians sometimes refer to as, as Christ's mediatorial kingdom. The kingdom which he rules as mediator. Which, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15, he will one day hand over to the Father after he has abolished all rule and authority. Right now, Christ rules over all flesh, even rules in the midst of his enemies, as we find in Psalm 110, verse 2. And in ruling over this kingdom, he gives eternal life to those whom the Father has specifically given to him. And when all of Christ's enemies, including death, are destroyed, on the day of resurrection, when Christ returns, then Christ will hand over this kingdom to God the Father. So Jesus has authority over all flesh, and Jesus shared the glory of the Father before the creation of the world. And so we see the, the deity and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ clearly enumerated here in these verses. So the question then for us is this. Do you recognize this deity and this authority of Jesus Christ Christ? and submit yourself to Him in faith? Do you look to Him to supply all of your needs, spiritual needs, earthly needs? Do you look to Him in faith and seek to obey Him? Now, I suppose most of us here this morning would say yes. The problem is day-to-day actually living like it, living like Christ truly is very God who has authority over all flesh and that means me. And that means you. Our natural bent is to be a law to ourselves, to make up the rules as we go and live by them or not, as the circumstances and convenience would dictate. This is the convenient aspect of making up your own rules. You get to change them whenever you want. If you don't like them, you can toss them out, make up some new ad hoc rules to fit the situation better. Our natural bent is to rely on our own cleverness or skill instead of relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to trust and boast in our wisdom, in our strength, in our riches. This is the natural bent of those who don't know God and even for those of us who do know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, even we have trouble being dragged back into this life of self-reliance Self-obedience, which makes up the rules as we go along and which doesn't trust anyone except ourselves and boasts in the things that we have or the things that we have accomplished. But the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows understands me. That's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The doctrine of the deity of Christ should be convicting to us because of our failure to submit to him in obedience as God and our failure to to trust in him and rely on him from day to day. Unfortunately, we still have a taste for sin left in our palate. And sometimes we add to our sin by somehow trying to make ourselves more acceptable to God than what Christ has already accomplished for us on the cross. The doctrine of the deity of Christ convicts us of sin and at the same time the doctrine of the deity of Christ is good news for us because Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. He is the true God and eternal life. And eternal life is found in knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent into the world. And So let this understanding of who Jesus is be a, a warning to us against our sin because Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge it. Let us be a warning to us against relying in ourselves because Jesus is God. We're not to boast in ourselves and trust in ourselves but to boast and trust in him alone. And let this also be a warning to you here if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, as we've seen, has authority over all flesh. And this means you. And one day Jesus is coming back to judge the world. And if you remain in your sins, he's going to judge you. You don't want that, and I don't want that for you. And so in the preaching of the gospel this morning, the good news comes to you. This Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you. And so I call upon you this morning to repent and believe in Him. Come to know Him and receive this gift of eternal life. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me, you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. After the service, we would love for you to have eternal life by knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And notice, secondly, in these, these opening ten verses of Jesus' prayer, the grace which Christ demonstrates toward his people. See just how kind the Lord is in his prayer here towards his disciples. Now, in a matter of minutes or an hour or two, probably, they would, they would desert him and leave him all alone. But nevertheless, he says some very remarkable And actually encouraging things about this group of men if we stop to think about it. Look at what he says about them. He says, verse 6, they have kept your word. Verse 7, they have come to know that everything that the Father has given to Christ is from the Father. Verse 8, they received God's words and truly understood that Christ came forth from the Father and believed that the Father had sent him. Verse 10, Jesus said, he has been glorified in them. Now, that's a lot of of high praise for the disciples. This is actually pretty encouraging if you stop and think about it. Despite all of their petty bickerings, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Despite their weakness of faith, their sins, and the fact that they would desert and Peter deny him that very night, Jesus speaks highly of them. He values them. He says, Father, they have kept your word. Jesus can say that he's been glorified by them. And that they have received the Father's words. Now how can Jesus lavish all of this praise on men whom we know to be so weak? Jesus can say this because all, despite all of their shortcomings in faith, all of their shortcomings in understanding, perception, all of their shortcomings in practical matters, despite all of that, there was still a great difference between these disciples and the world. Jesus saw it, Jesus knew it. He said to them, Luke twenty-two, twenty-eight. 28, that very night, he said, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And these men had walked with Christ, they had stood by Christ, certainly they didn't do it perfectly, but nevertheless they stood with Christ. Certainly they were weak, certainly they succumbed to temptation, but at the end of the day they would not look for life anywhere else than other than in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John six sixty seven and 69, after a day when some hard teachings had been delivered and many of Jesus' temporary followers were going away, Jesus said to him, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter spoke for the group when he said, Lord, to whom we sh- shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now this is true discipleship. This is discipleship which is honored and approved by the Lord Jesus. It is a bulldogged tenacity on their part to stick it out with Christ come what may. They probably didn't understand what Jesus had told them in John 6, but they knew they had nowhere else to go. This was obviously a gift from God, and it was accompanied with all of the flaws that they brought to the table. They had faith which was a gift from God they had their own flaws intermingled and mixed in with it but they absolutely refused to ultimately abandon their lord they slipped they stumbled sometimes grievously along the way just think of peter when he said lord this shall certainly not happen to you and peter and then the lord said to peter get behind me satan right and they they slipped and stumbled along the way but nevertheless they would not abandon Jesus to seek for life anywhere else. And this is what distinguished them from the world. The Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews wanted Jesus dead. The crowds, at least some of them, wanted simply to see signs, or to see miracles, or to eat some more bread from a miracle. John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Whatever the case was, the world had no firm resolve to follow after Christ. The disciples, on the other hand, are categorically different. They had stood by him in his trials, they had loved him, they had trusted him. And that's a far cry from the reception that Christ had from the world. And so Christ can say that he's been glorified by these men, that they had kept the Father's word. And, and so in his prayer, Jesus is very specific that he's praying for the disciples and not for the world. Again, there's, there's this particularity that we've seen in the ministry of Jesus. He's praying for these 11 disciples and emphatically not for the world. So the way that we see Jesus speaking about his disciples as having kept God's word, the statement that he's been glorified in them, teach us about the kind of God and Savior that Jesus Christ is. They demonstrate to us that he is a high priest who can sympathize with the weakness of his brothers because he himself is a man. He's not only a sovereign God with authority over all flesh, he is also man. He himself knows what it's like to be tempted. And he's willing to take selfish, petty, impetuous, boastful, self-reliant people and use them. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for those of us who are here this morning? That Jesus can take people like that transform them, and use them. He doesn't praise their faults. He loves them despite their faults. He looks at the faint beginnings of the flame of grace in the lives of these men and does not snuff it out. Instead, he gently nursed that flame into a great fire, all the while commending these men to God. He says, they have kept your word. I have been glorified in them. He's not ashamed to call these feeble men, his brothers, Though he knows they're, they're all going to hightail it out of there when he gets arrested. And so please know this morning that if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, this condescension and love that we see from Jesus to his disciples is yours also. You too are a recipient of this kind of grace. Jesus loves you that way and that much as well. Sometimes... We see our sins, our shortcomings, our faults, our negligences, our ignorances. Certainly we don't see all of our faults and sins, but we see some of them. And if your conscience is tender, it can be really discouraging sometimes because we can see our sins and we can feel really burdened by them. And we need to know our sins. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We need to know them so that we can repent of them. Seek God's grace to help us. But, friend, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, I want you to know that though you are a sinner and though you are sensible of your sins, take heart, you are also justified. You're a saint, you are one of the Lord's holy ones. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old really has gone, the new really has come. And so please be encouraged to know that Jesus sees the reality of that new creation in you. He sees it better than you do. These disciples had lots of issues and problems and sins, but Jesus accepted them, he commended them, and was glorified in them, even despite all of their bumbling efforts. It was said by Richard Sibbs of old, that what displeases us shall never hurt us. And we shall be esteemed by God to be what we love and desire and labor to be. What we desire to be, we shall be. And what we desire to truly conquer, we shall conquer. For God will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. This holds true for us if we've come to Jesus in true faith and repentance. And this is, this is truly amazing. If you... Read, for example, the the book of 1 Corinthians. It's abundantly clear that the members of that church had all kinds of problems. They had theological problems, they had practical problems, problems within the life of the church, moral problems, you name it. But, yet Paul owned them as true believers. How did he open his letter to them? He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, In all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that amazing that Paul can say these kinds of things to a church that he's just getting ready to lay out all of their problems and call them to repentance. But yet he owns them for true believers. He sees the work of God within them for what it is. And so, friend, if you are a believer in Christ here this morning, take heart. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you and that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus sees you as one who has kept God's word, as one who has believed that God has sent his Son into the world. Jesus sees you as one by whom he has been glorified. You and I have plenty of faults and sins. But as we find in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and instilled ministering to the saints. Now, you may have forgotten or have disregarded your faith and love toward God and your work for Him. You might have forgotten about some of the things that you've done in your service to the Lord. But the Lord has not forgotten. Truly, the Lord is gracious and merciful. And we see that here in our Lord's Prayer for His disciple. So the Lord is good and kind. And the final question I have for you this morning is this. Do you know God? and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. This is eternal life. If you know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent, then rejoice. Because all of the wonderful things that we have seen Jesus doing in our passage, praying for His people, acknowledging the the fruits that He sees in them, know that what Jesus does for them, He does for you. But if you do not know God and Jesus Christ, then please be warned, Because, as we've seen, Christ makes a strong distinction between his people and the world. And I urge you this morning to flee from the world and flee to Christ. To repent and believe and to enter the kingdom of God.